Hi, and thanks for listening to the Wise Women in Sport podcast. Just a warning that this episode does include discussion around eating disorders. Hello, I'm Emily, and thank you for listening to the Wise Women in Sport podcast. Firstly, a big thank you to everyone who listened to episode three with Sean and those of you who reviewed or sent messages to say how much you enjoyed it. This week, I'm speaking to someone who works with female athletes in a professional capacity every day, but doesn't often have the chance to tell her own story as a sportswoman. And I'm so pleased she agreed to speak with me. Here we go. Here is episode four. Welcome to the Wise Women in Sport podcast, the podcast where I delve into the lives of female athletes and sportswomen and discuss how they train and compete around their physiology as women. Today I'm speaking with runner and dietitian Rini McGregor. Rini is a leading sports dietitian specialising in eating disorders, the female athlete, athlete health and performance. As well as her experience as a clinical dietitian, she's worked as part of Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth teams. She currently works with and advises a large number of national teams and governing bodies, as well as working directly with amateur and professional athletes who have developed a dysfunctional relationship with food that is impacting their performance, health and career. But this podcast is about the individual and outside of her work, Rini is an accomplished runner of everything from 5k up to ultramarathon. Last year, Rini was crowned British trail running champion in her age group, as well as completing a tough 250k run over five days for charity. That's over 30 miles a day. It is all a stark contrast from her upbringing above a shop on a council estate, and I'm really interested to hear more about how she got here. So Rini, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much for having me. What an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll we'll dive straight in, shall we? Um, do you remember where and when you got your first period and what that experience was like for you? I do. Um, and it, it's not a it's not a happy story. Um, so, yeah, bear with me. Um, so I was um, I was at home. It was an evening. Um, I remember it quite clearly. I think I've been watching some TV with my mum and sister and um, I just went to the loo like you would because I needed a, needed a wee and uh, lo and behold, my period had arrived. Um, I was 13 and five months. Um, I remember oh, you really that. really know exactly. Yeah, well, it was a very, um, uh, getting my period was quite a difficult experience uh so when I got my period obviously that night I went out and spoke to my mum um we hadn't really spoken about it now just to give some context for anybody who doesn't know me I am um, Indian as in I'm British Indian I was born and brought up in the UK but my mum and dad are not their first immigrants um and they my mum just hadn't spoken to me about periods like I knew about it from school um, and a few girls had spoken about it at, at school, but I didn't, I didn't, I don't know, I guess I just hadn't really thought about it. Um, and we didn't have anything really suitable in terms of like, like my mum my didn't have tampons. And um, at that time, she didn't really have any sort of um, lightweight, I suppose, you know, liners as such. She was... Yeah it was it was quite old you know like you have to remember I'm 47 now so it was quite a while while back um but I I remember it clearly because I was I was in a lot of shock um which sounds weird because obviously you know you're expecting it but again if we think back to the generation and and my mum is uh, she was at that time would be thought of as quite an old mum like she was 36 when she had me so Mm. you know bear that in mind obviously not now but back in the day that was quite an old mum and um it was a really difficult conversation and it it sounds really harsh now when I say it but it was actually quite pivotal in what happened next in my life but my mum like I remember sort of sitting there and feeling a bit shocked and obviously I've got two daughters and the conversations have been very different but um she sort of looked at me and she's like oh I wasn't expecting that Mm. um and uh well you obviously have been thinking about boys and that's why you got your period and it sounds it, it you can tell I'm quite it's quite difficult to talk about mm. it because it's 
something I've ever spoken about really openly before. Um, because I don't blame my mum. Like it's not, I'm not, this is not about trying to apportion blame to her, but obviously that was a very negative comment and um, it stuck with me for a very long time. I felt like I'd somehow disappointed her, you know, in something that was completely and utterly natural. I felt I disappointed her. And and this has been a bit of a running theme in my life with my mum. So it was not the best, shall we say. And actually, I only had three periods before um, they stopped due to um, my eating disorder. So again, you can kind of maybe put two and two together and realise what happened. But um, Mm. yeah, it wasn't wasn't ideal, put it that way. So... You just mentioned your eating disorder. Um, you suffered with anorexia, is that right? I did, yeah. What was that experience like, finding out that you were suffering with anorexia and how did it affect you? Um, with were, were you taking part in sport at, ta- at that time? Yeah, so I've always been a very active individual. In fact, you know, again, you always look back and think, wow, I never gave myself credit where credit was due. And... Um, I can see now that I've always been actually very good at sport. Um, I was in all the teams and I was, you know, always picked for things. I was more like involved in netball and hockey. Um, I did a lot of dance as well. Um, So I wasn't a runner at that point. Um, And I had done a lot of swimming from a very young age. So from the age of six until about 11, I'd swum. Um, So I'd been one of those, you know, one of those kids that swam every every night of the week. Um, so I guess I'd always had like sport had been a big part of my life and it was a big part of my identity. Um, but having an eating disorder, obviously, you know, as people are aware and I sort of educate this all the time, it's not, you know, it's not a conscious choice. It's not, I decided to have an eating disorder. Um, I didn't even really know what one was at that time. Again, you know, think back, we are talking, you know, <laughs> quite a long time ago, three decades ago. So, um, but what I remember feeling was this deep rooted discomfort. Mm-hmm. I just remember not feeling okay. And I think, you know, again, I have quite a clear memory of like sitting on a wall at school. I, this was probably my third period now. And, you know, you get, you obviously get the bloating and the water retention and the discomfort as we all mm. know as women. And I just remember like feeling my sort of waistband of my skirt sort of digging into me. I just had lunch and, and instead of just kind of being rational about it, I think because the narrative had already been set up and my yeah. psychosocial space, and I'm definitely uh genetically susceptible uh from you know from research now in 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 obviously in my career um i just remember projecting onto my body and thinking this has got to stop i don't want to mm-hmm. feel like this anymore and you know i i'd grown up in an environment where school was really really difficult for me i'd been bullied there'd been a lot of racist remarks um I I didn't fit in. So as you said at the beginning, I was brought up um, above a shop on a council estate and I had gained a place at a, a an all girls sort of private school through mm-hmm. assisted places and, and scholarships. So I didn't fit. My face didn't fit. My color didn't fit. I didn't fit. And I didn't really have any friends, if I'm honest at all. I was very lonely. Um, and I think it all just came to a head. I think somewhere something just snapped and I decided that I needed to do something and I definitely projected all my hatred towards myself onto my body and like I said it wasn't a conscious you know I'm gonna not eat I just started cutting back I suppose and then because I didn't really have friends at school I would skip lunch and sit in the library and just eat an apple because it was safe you know like no one could pick on me there and and obviously you know like I said over the years I've done my own research about my eating disorder and why and 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 like with most people there's no one 
There's no one comment. There's no one incident. This was a, a buildup over my entire childhood. I was sexually abused as a very young child. Um, and again, that was kind of brushed under the carpet. And in hindsight now, with all the knowledge I have, I can see that my eating disorder was was my way of communicating. It was my way of saying, you know, I feel so insignificant mm. that I'm going to become that insignificant. You know, I was, it was a way of punishing me, but it was a way of demonstrating my anger. It was a way of just being small and quiet. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was bloody awful <laughs> to, be, to be honest. I mean, nobody, you know, everybody will say that an eating disorder is, it's a horrific illness. It's mm. so isolating. It's so cold. It's it, it's debilitating to a certain degree. And you just have wave after wave after wave of intrusive thinking. Yeah. I can't really put it any other way apart from it, it, it was horrific. And I, I guess it's maybe one of the reasons I've ended up working in it because I just want to prevent people from ever going down that path because it's just so awful and I have a lot of empathy for those that yeah. are stuck in it um but I I I I yeah I think it's the worst illness mm. really is and how long did it go on for for you so I was very good at hiding it and again we have to remember this is over three decades ago. So it wasn't mm. something that people were talking about. You know, we're in a different space now. And, you know, my mum and dad would take me to the doctors because they could see I was losing weight. Obviously, my period stopped really quickly. Um, yeah. And I also became very withdrawn. Um, but the doctor just kept saying, oh, it's just a teenage fad. It's just a teenage fad. Let's not oh. worry about it. So it carried on for quite a long time. So I guess it was probably a year later when I was 14 that finally the GP was like, I think he weighed me and was like, oh, okay, mm. this has gone too far now. And so I was referred to uh, get some like, uh, I think it was like, they were called CPN, so Community Psychiatric Nurse. Um, okay. I, I had a few sessions with with one of them, but again, I mean, immediately they were like, no, this, is, this has gone too far. And I was very quickly referred um, into the Maudsley Hospital. Yep. Um, so I started there, but I was an outpatient. So I was one of the first people that they um, they did the Maudsley method on, which mm -hmm. for people who don't know is, is like, you know, family-based therapy. And it's very much about putting the control of food um, into the family's hand and encouraging the family to basically try and encourage that young person to eat yeah. um it's not I'm going to make myself very clear it's not approach I agree with mm -hmm. it's not approach I do in my clinic um and a lot of that is because of the trauma it caused me and also the subsequent trauma I've heard from youngsters since then mm -hmm. um and when you start looking at the evidence it's it's pretty poor the outcome is pretty poor I mean you can you know you're fundamentally telling a parent to force their child to eat yeah um and you're a mother you yeah. try and imagine what that feels like mm. um so I was there for a year as an outpatient um and the focus was purely on weight restoration there was nothing there was no talking about what was going on for me or why I had this problem like nothing, nothing was at there all. any sorry, was there any mention of um your your menstrual cycle in any of this? Did anyone no. say no, no one talked about no. that at all? Nothing or, nothing or all. sort of the the hormones, you know, influx of hormones at that time or anything? No. Nothing nothing was spoken about it. There was there was no there was no psychological therapy involved mm. at all. It was very much you come every week, you get weighed, and if you haven't restored some weight, then the whole hour was focused on why. Mm. Um, and I remember very clearly one uh, one appointment, and it sticks so clearly in my mind, I'll never forget this, bearing in mind I was 14. Mm. And uh, 
we'd been told to bring a packed lunch to to the hospital because they wanted to see my parents you know feed me they wanted to see how they encouraged me to eat and I remember it because like I'm you know I made the packed lunch and I also made my parents packed lunch but you know one of the things about anorexics is they they like to make food taste good for everybody else but not for themselves (laughs) and so I made these sandwiches with like butter and cheese and all sorts of things and you know I'm laughing about it now thinking well this is fine for my parents you know yeah Um, and we turn up and basically uh we're in a room with a video so you know like a screened you have a screen so there's lots of people behind the screen and my parents were encouraged to force me to eat oh god Um, and I, I I I mean I feel sick actually talking about it it makes me feel quite upset because I still remember um I just remember how awful that was like Mm. I'm getting a bit upset about it but it was the most horrific thing that's ever happened that's a sound I was you know literally force-fed um Mm. and yeah I mean I guess when you've had that treatment Mm. it's like you know what I just want to get out of here so I suppose in some ways it worked in that I from that point onwards I was like I just need to get the weight on so I can get out of here I just don't want to be part of this anymore um but it was I would say it's pretty barbaric is how I would describe it um so a year later it took a year for me to restore my weight and I was discharged um there wasn't really any mention then either about menstruation. I mean, uh, you know, they didn't really talk about when to expect that to come back or or anything, anything like that. And I definitely didn't, like nothing, it didn't come back in that moment, like within the first few months of me sort of being a restored weight. But if I'm, if I'm honest, Emily, like, you know, I, I didn't really know why I'd had an eating disorder. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really understand my behavior. So as soon as I was discharged, which was pretty much, I think, you know, I maintained my weight for three or four weeks and they're like, right, you're fine now. Oh, um, right. I was discharged and I wasn't given any extra support in the community. And so I kind of went back yeah. to my old behaviors. I, I definitely didn't go right the way back. Like I was very, you know, I knew I didn't want to go back to, how desperate it had been when I had been um, Mm. admitted, you know, as an outpatient. But I also had no idea how to eat normally. I had no idea what, what, what any of it was about. Mm. And so I guess, um, you know, I I guess I stayed like that until I hit uni, if I'm honest, like I was about a stone underweight for uh, my, you know, my finishing my GCSEs and, and going doing my A-levels and then I got to uni and then things changed at uni like I think I got to uni and suddenly I was like what am I doing like Mm. I can't join in I can't I can't like I can't be part of anything the the joining in I'm interested to know about so was that kind of from a from a psychological perspective you found it difficult to join in because of the food or or was it the energy levels what was that it was everything really. I, I definitely, I mean, I was fine in terms of like cognitive function. I was, I was fine and I was able to concentrate, you know, anorexics are very highly functioning and we're very high achievers. So Mm. we're very good at being capable. Um, I was absolutely had no, no issues at all. And I, I loved my course. Um, but I really struggled with the social aspect. Like I couldn't, I couldn't join in with food, I didn't, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from a Sikh background. And at that point, you know, it was very much dutiful daughter, which was, you didn't drink alcohol. So I didn't drink. It was a massive culture shock. And I guess I'd never lived alone. I'd never had my teenage years, obviously, because yeah. I'd had anorexia. So it was all a little bit overwhelming, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, and my mood was quite low. I guess now, and I know because I still didn't have a period. Um, I was on the pill. They'd the the GP had put me on the pill when I was 18 because I'd had a DEXA at that point and it had been low and Mm -hmm. obviously again we go back you know several decades and that was the protocol then to put someone on on the on the combined oral contraceptive pill something not we do now but it was then to try and protect bone health and so I was on the pill so I guess you know in, in my mind um there was a 
I suppose in, in the GP's mind, there was a bit of protection, if we call yeah. it that. Um, but it was at uni that I actually went and got proper help. It was at uni for the first time. I was like, oh, I can't, I don't want to live if it's like this. And I knew I wanted to live. <laughs> so I I went and sought help through um, student services. And I had an amazing counsellor who I'll never forget, who really helped me to fully understand more about what was going on for me, you know, like, yeah. and, and actually how it was nothing to do with how I looked or weight or food, or it was all about my relationship with my mum and sort of fear of, I suppose, I say growing up, but more about fear of not being dutiful. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't talk to her about the sexual abuse. That came a lot later for me. It was like something I think I'd just put in a box and yeah. locked the box and I didn't want to talk about it. So I guess it was it was uni where things turned around for me. And I I then did manage to really enjoy my last couple of years. Like I had two two more years at Nottingham and then I went on to Glasgow to do my dietetics and I had an amazing couple of years. Um, so I guess by the time... I, you know, I, I kind of always knew that I wanted to be well because I wanted to be a dietitian and I couldn't have been a dietitian if I hadn't been well. So by the yeah. time I got my first job, I mean, I was fine. You know, I was a normal weight. Um, I couldn't tell you if my period had come back because I was still on the pill. So mm. I, I didn't know. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a long journey. And I think, you know, that first bit of counselling I had at uni definitely was the turning point and then subsequently from then on in you know intermittently I have gone back to therapy to understand yeah. a bit more and and I think the more research I've done from my own work perspective the more I've understood um which has been it's been interesting it's been quite sad at times as well yeah. to think wow if I'd known that when I was 16 17 maybe I wouldn't have suffered for quite as yeah. long you know so yeah. But I guess that's what I use now is I have all this knowledge, so I want to use it in a way that mm. helps other people. And I've heard you speak on other podcasts and say how it has added to your your empathy and how, you know, you can really empathise with some of the people you work with who've, who've experienced eating disorders. So, um, yeah, it's, it like you say, it's so sad to know some of the things that, that could have been different um, that might have helped you. Let's talk a little bit about um, something a bit happier, a bit a bit about mm-hmm. running. Mm-hmm. Um, so during that time, when you were a teenager and going into university, did you take part in any sport at all? Was that not something that you could really do? Um, I didn't. I mean, so obviously when I was very poorly and under the mortality, I wasn't allowed to do anything. Um, and one of my motivators to, to also, another motivator to return, to restore weight was I, I really missed my dancing. Like I loved my dancing. Um, so that was really good. It was like a good motivator. And I did go back to dancing um, for about a year. And then I hit 16. And then my, my parents were like, we want you to focus on ac- academia rather than, than dance. And so I kind of gave that up. Um, I didn't really do much sport at all in my sixth form. Um, but when I went to uni, I rejoined the netball team. So that was fun. Um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really do much else. Like I, I guess. And then when I went to Glasgow, fundamentally my, (laughs) my, uh, um, exercise was clubbing. So (laughs) so, um, (laughs) I don't think that counts. Um, but, but, you know, it kept me fit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It gave you that endurance. Yeah. Um, and so when was it that you really laced up the running shoes and started, started taking part in running? So I didn't really start running. I dabbled a little bit, uh, probably, probably when I, first moved to London for jobs um I I did that classic you know I I don't know if it even exists anymore but back then it was there were all these homes place gyms and you could get like really good membership and so I I remember joining a gym and that was kind of like my first encounter of a gym and I I mean I was completely thrown by everything I had no idea what any of it was and in the end I think I just stuck to doing spinning classes because I was like I don't understand these machines so I'm not going to do them (laughs) um 
Uh, and then from there, like, I think then I, I kind of felt a little bit constrained by going to the gym, like, you know, like timing wise, and it wasn't really fitting with, with life and work. So I then that's when I, I started doing a little bit of running, but nothing, nothing serious. Like I did, you know, I ran around the block fundamentally. I mean, yeah. it was, when I think about what I do now, it was nothing in comparison, but then I just, I kind of, yeah, I, I, um, I did, I wouldn't say it was serious. I suppose I, my proper running started when my second daughter was about 11 months old. So mm. she, so I'd breastfed both my girls and she, she was, she she'd get up really early. Like she'd get up at five um, for her morning feed and then she'd go back to sleep, which is great. You know, some babies don't. But by this point I was wide awake um, and I lived, we lived on a boat. So um, I had the, I had the towpath like literally outside my front door so I was just like I started to just go out for 10-15 minutes I thought well it'll be good for me just to get outside and and try um and I had a couple of friends that did quite a lot of running and I was quite inspired by them I'd been to watch them um do like the bath half and I was like I'll just give it a go and I literally went out like I said 10 minutes out 10 minutes back and then slowly that built up and then I entered my first 10K um, and I did really well. And I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I entered a half marathon and I, I did well. And, and I guess it sort of built from there. So, I, yeah, I suppose it was 2005 when I probably first started running properly. It's interesting that you say it was after you had, um, was it your second daughter? Mm. Um, do you think that that maybe had something to do with it kind of a drive to to have that independence like you say just to get out for yourself and get some fresh air yeah definitely I definitely I mean I've always been somebody that needs to be outdoors like I'm you know obviously my my upbringing was not in the nicest of places but I still remember as a child before everything sort of went wrong for me I spent hours and hours running around outside you know Mm. like I've always been uh, like I think mother nature just has an effect on me um yeah and I I need it I need it f- to be grounded and so you know we were really lucky like I said we lived on a boat and we were in pretty much the outs just on the outskirts of, of of Bath and it was it was really pretty I was really lucky mm. um so yeah and it was it gave me an opportunity just to sort of feel a little bit like oh this is my time Oh, and, yeah. and this is something Rini does. This is not about being a mum. This is something that Rini does for herself. And it just gave me a sense of freedom, but equally, I think definitely added to my sense of worth in that yeah. I felt good. I felt like I was doing something. I loved the feeling of moving my body. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, know exactly what you mean. Um, So, I mean, and a lovely place to run down in the southwest as well. I mean, like you say, it's so, so beautiful down there. Such a lovely part of the world to be able to get out and and run. But I know you are also a massive fan of the mountains. I am, Um, yes. And tell us a little bit about that um, step up. I mean, probably quite a big step from from 10Ks and half marathons. How did you then progress on to ultra marathons and, and spending time running in the mountains? Oh, it's a really good question. And I guess like, so firstly, my first ever experience of the mountains was when I was about 17. So my mum and dad, like I said, are um, Sikh and they're very religious. And there's a, there's actually a Sikh temple in, tucked away in the Himalayas. And you can only access it for six weeks a year because of the glaciers and, and everything else. Oh, wow. And it was something my mum and dad, like one thing I said about my mum and dad, they're incredibly adventurous. So I, you know, I think I get a lot of that from them. And they wanted to do, like obviously it was a religious thing, but they wanted to do this pil- pilgrimage to the temple. Um, and so they took my sister and I both on this. And I remember so clearly, I mean, I might even have been younger. I might even have been 16. I can't remember the exact, but I just remember... I can see it now, visualizing it. The first time I saw those amazing mountains, like mm. nothing I'd ever seen before. And I was absolutely just 
my, I, I don't know. I can't even explain. I was so moved. I mm. felt like bearing in mind I'd had a horrendous few years. Yeah. I suddenly felt at peace. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I nothing matters anymore. Mm. And even though I was going through, still going through some difficulties that time with my eating, I was able to eat really well on that trip. And I, I wanted to look after myself and I just felt this real affinity with my space. And I was like, this, this, I've got to come back here. This is, this is really, really important. You know, like something had moved in me. And I, and I, I actually think probably was the start of me fully committing to recovery, you know? Mm. Um, so that'd be my first experience. And I guess I went from, road running like we all do um well a lot of us do uh yeah. and I'd done three marathons and I'd got the same time all three times <laughs> and I was like oh I don't even enjoy it and it's really hard like my girls were little it was really hard to fit in the training yeah um and I was just you know through my running I've met some amazing people and I met some you know I met some other mums who were really into running and they basically trail running and I'd never done trail running before because I was always scared of getting lost and um I went I started going out with them and I I really enjoyed it and then um I met some other runners through like the running club who also did more trail running stuff and I guess there was a little group of us and we just used to go away on trips together mm-hmm. um you know we were always like one half of a of a partnership where um, the other partner didn't didn't run so we yeah. just had to go like these very short trips once a year and I guess I started to get that ability you know I got that opportunity to go out and run in more and more amazing locations you know we went to um, Annecy and we went to um, the Dolomites and, and, and so many amazing places and so I guess if I'm honest I owe it to my, well I think most people know that I'm um, good friends with with Holly Rush and I I, yeah. I owe it to her because she definitely opened the door and she was the first person that believed in me and my running and really encouraged me um, and actually in 2012 she went to Nepal for the first time to do a race and she came back and we were chatting about it and she goes really you need to go like I know you've got kids but you just need to go this is exactly what you need mm. um, and and she was right it was exactly what I needed. And I went and, you know, I was 37 at the time. And I remember it was the first time I'd ever traveled anywhere on my own Mm. ever. And, um, it was, it was the first time I'd left my girls for longer than a weekend. Um, Mm. and it was, uh, it felt very decadent and very wrong, (laughs) but also, you know, like so grateful that I could do it. And I think, you know, it was a difficult time in my life. Like this is where my marriage was starting to unravel and fall apart. Mm -hmm. So I had a very difficult relationship at home, but I loved my kids. And, you know, I, I was starting to get back into my career and I loved running and I had this amazing group of friends that just, I don't know, everything just felt okay apart from that part of my life. And going away was just really good for me. So I went to Nepal. Um, I did the Manaslu trail race. Um, and yeah, I guess, they, I think from there on in, I mean, once you've done Nepal, you feel confident in pretty much every mountain <laughs> you go yeah, to. So, um, so yeah, I guess, and I just, again, it's that same sense of I'm happiest when I'm in the mountains. I'm, I feel like myself, mm. like the most comfortable I am with who I am when I'm there, like there's no judgment. You know, in mindfulness, we talk about non-striving, non-judgmental. Yeah acceptance I feel that when I'm in the mountains Mm. it's the only time that I genuinely feel that um and so I guess yeah that's sort of where my where my instinct to always return (laughs) comes from (laughs) and that move into trail running uh ultra marathons running in the mountains did it have an impact at all for you on your respect for your body after everything that you've come through um, I know speaking personally as someone that's run ultra marathons, you know, I used to look in the mirror and think, oh, I don't like that about myself. I'm not sure like my hips or how my legs look. And then running ultra marathons, you start to think, wow, my body is amazing and it can do incredible things. And you know what? 
I've got a lot of respect for it now. Did you have anything like that experience? I think I definitely did, but it actually came from being pregnant. Oh, right. Because when I fell pregnant for the first time, I was 26 years old and I, you know, I'd, I'd literally been on the pill um, from 18 until mm. that point. And I'd come off the pill because I was getting really bad headaches. I had no idea if I had a normal cycle, bearing in mind I'd not had a period since I was 13, you know, a real period. So I had no idea. And I fell pregnant immediately. Okay. It's okay. Sorry. Um, I fell pregnant immediately and I was, was a bit taken aback. I was like, oh, was not expecting that. Um, uh, so to be honest, going through pregnancy and then giving birth and then breastfeeding and, and my body returning back to its pre-pregnancy state is really what helped me to become just amazed by the human body and actually trust it. Like that's when I would say I fully started to learn to trust my body and just kind of, because I went with it, like you have to, don't you? Like your body, you're looking at, you know, you're you're housing, (laughs) come here, you're housing um, a baby and that that's important it's really relevant and it's really important and i just remember constantly being amazed at the fact that this was my body and it was doing it and then equally when i you know when i'd given birth and i like i said started breastfeeding and and started to see how my body was changing week by week by week without mm. not really doing anything just you know just looking after a baby and and trying to make sure i was eating well and and i and i you know i went back to where i had been pre pregnancy without really much difficulty and I appreciate that's not everybody's story but but I did and I guess it helped me to realize that well that's where your body wants to be that's your like you know we talk about set point that is obviously where your body is happiest because you you can have a baby there and you've gone back there and and I suppose for me that's where things changed I think with running absolutely like it definitely kept on consolidating that you know like it's very easy it's very easy to look at yourself and compare. And I think it's one of the things I love about trail running is that no two women look the same. And there isn't, there isn't a look for trail running, whereas obviously road running, marathon running, sadly, there's still, I think, a socially acceptable ideal. I don't agree with it, but there is, and, and we can't ignore that. But I think with trail running, I, I, I think that's why I love it because it, it, I was accepted. You know, I talked about earlier on, how being a different color in a you know in a very fundamentally white privileged environment yeah. was really difficult for me and suddenly trail running everything goes right yeah everything goes Everyone's and i accepted. think yeah and i think that's why i love it i think i feel i feel happiest in that community they are the most accepting and everybody comes from different backgrounds but everybody's got the same mindset and the same purpose of being on a journey and enjoying that environment and you know my current partner I met through running and you know we we align in our values align in so many ways because I think because we come from that space of of appreciating our environment and what it does for us both mentally and physically um just going back to what you said about um, pregnancy and childbirth and that changing your perception really of your of your body and respect for your body for me what astounded me was some of the things that the midwives or the doctors would say and they'll say you know your milk will come in in five days and I'm like well how do you know how do you know that's going to happen is it definitely going to happen you know and but it's like your body does just know it knows Mm. what to do and like you said you afterwards you're breastfeeding and you're you're not really thinking about what you look like at that time you've had a baby and you're just trying to survive um and slowly everything kind of comes back and like you say you get this set point where your body then just just is um and yeah it's a really interesting time of life where you know you feel like everything is is so much out of out of your hands and your body's just doing it all for you really it's amazing but I think it's so important to highlight that, right? Like I work with a lot of women now who, who you know, they do have a difficult relationship with their bodies. They do have a difficult relationship with food. And, and you know, when they fall pregnant or they have a baby, that 
that that distrust in their body is still there and it it's it's so important I think to educate women and empower women to remember that you know this is fundamentally why we are on this earth you know our bodies absolutely know what they're doing so if you push against it if you try this like this whole need for like control that people talk about if you try and control it it's just gonna it's gonna fight back I remember my midwife I had an amazing midwife because I had both my girls at home so I actually gave birth on the boat with both my girls oh, wow. and yeah I I never wanted to go into a hospital even though I worked in one for the reason <laughs> I didn't want to I was like I, I don't like hospitals I don't want to go yeah. into a hospital and I had this amazing midwife she said the reason why majority and also this is majority the reason why majority of births go that go wrong are when women try and hold back and fight back against what their body naturally wants to do if you just go with it then you you know you will get through it and I remember like it's kind of the same it's the same mantra I kind of take into ultras you know it it is gonna hurt but also you kind of just I don't know if you go with it as with everything in life it keeps moving doesn't it It keeps changing and I think I remember just thinking so weirdly like I'm kind of I think I'm sort of jotting around but I think it's really important weirdly you know often when people have anorexia and they're even when they're, they're kind of recovered from their anorexia a lot of people I work with or I've known having had an eating disorder they still a lot of them stay quite controlled like like mm. they were called quite controlling individuals and I'm just not that person you know I'm actually very good at letting go I'm actually very good at being in uncertainty yeah. and I think that's it like when you give birth you are in uncertainty you have no idea apart from the fact that at some point at the end of it you will have a baby that's it yeah. right and I guess for me, I just was like, I'm just, I just have to go with it. I'm, I trust my body. And it goes back to that. I trust my body. And even now to this day, people say, how, how do you like, how do you know how much to eat? How do you, how come you have no hangups? Like why, you know, how can you got over it? And it's because I trust, I trust mm. my body to tell me what it wants. I trust my body to work for me. And you know what? It hasn't let me down. Yeah. So it, it, just kind of I think it's so important to highlight that our bodies do know what they're doing whether it's in pregnancy or giving birth or whether it's just in running and training like if you listen if you genuinely listen and honor what it's asking you whether that's you need an extra rest day or actually I'm starving today I need another round of toast (laughs) if you honor it it does work better for you jumping ahead slightly into more of your professional career working with um, the athletes that you work with you talk a little bit about um, people wanting to control what they eat a little bit more and be and being restrictive um, in maybe their diets and and athletes doing that I mean I've experienced it with I coach a few people um, in running on lower level but people that really want to kind of um, plan ahead what they're eating and really think about the calories they're taking in and everything with female athletes um you've spoken in your book about um your latest book more for you which I've got here um Mm. about the female athlete and some of the problems that we can have that surround that just speak a little bit about if you wouldn't mind speaking about some of the some of the issues that female athletes should be aware of when it comes to nutrition and their menstrual cycle and how it's all connected yeah so I mean I mean obviously we just you know we've just spoken about the fact that fundamentally females are on this earth to reproduce and and mm. while we might not want to accept it we are and and so our body is also prepared for that and so it means actually we are much more sensitive when times are scarce in that our body will start to shut down so if we don't provide our body with enough fuel our body will very early on start to switch on compensatory behaviors which then fundamentally downregulate your biological function and and stop you from falling pregnant because you wouldn't be able to support a baby for nine months Mm. you know um and I think like one of the things that is so clear is that there's this real misunderstanding of just how much fuel it takes just to be a human let alone a human that's running 
or or cycling or you know doing whatever um and i think a lot of it's because we live in this you know modern world where we're constantly being told to move more and eat less and one of my biggest kind of bugbears is the fact that everybody assumes the body is transactional and actually it's not you know like we've just spoken about the wonder of 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 being pregnant and birth and breastfeeding and you know it, it's this incredible piece of engineering fundamentally you know and yeah. and if we don't if we don't tend to it appropriately if we don't give it what it needs it can't function it can't work well and i think you know the biggest biggest misconception i see in particularly female athletes is this focus on body aesthetic this kind of you know, this may be similar to how I felt all those years ago, not feeling right, feeling this discomfort, believing because of what we see and hear in our surrounding that, you know, being lighter will make them faster, will make them a better runner or observing that somebody else lost some weight and and, and suddenly started running better. But also look around you, how many of those female athletes continue to run well? Mm. Now, this is this is this was something that I found mind blowing when I first started working as a sports dietitian was, you know, I'd been following the marathon for quite some time. And then suddenly, you know, especially London Marathon, and suddenly like I was involved with these people, you know, yeah. and and I was like, we never see the same female group mm. two years running in, in, in the UK. That is, you know, we don't see the same women because they don't look after themselves. Mm. And I, that sounds harsh in that they, they don't look after themselves. I think they are under a lot of pressure and they believe that, you know, pushing harder, working through pain, trying to reduce their energy intake so that they can perhaps be lighter. They believe, and I think they're, they're encouraged to believe that that is what will make them better. And of course, then, you know, you might get one really great performance at a slightly lower weight because you 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 know that's physics but the thing is the body cannot sustain that you know we talked earlier about set point like everybody does have a clear set point but a set point is actually a range of weights it's not an absolute weight and it tends to range around 10 kilos and so yeah maybe a, a female athlete can sit at the very bottom end of that and operate really well but if they go below that they're not going to operate well. That's when the body starts to shut down. So, and, and you know, what they don't realize is like, I was actually just reviewing some uh, blood tests for a, for a client who I'm seeing tomorrow. And, you know, she's a runner and, um, you know, she's, she, you know, she's on the lower end of the normal BMI. But what she, her bloods are incredibly clear. Like not only is her estrogen low, but her testosterone is also very low. And what women don't realize is if you're, you know, if you downregulate your hypothalamic pituitary access and you downregulate all your reproductive hormones, that includes testosterone. And testosterone, as we know, is really important for our performance, right? It's really important for our adaptation. So even though the our levels are nowhere near as high as men's, we still have a range in which we operate at our best. And it's so, I guess it's so tricky because when you're at the the high end of the scale let's face it if you're an elite athlete you've got there through some some obsession with your sport I would suppose and an obsession with getting it right and running each session and and taking in the right nutrition and I suppose the if you then if you then do well if you are at the front of the London Marathon and you 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 do really well that year it's then okay how am I going to do this again next year next year I've got to do all the same stuff and you know like you say maybe become even lighter um and you can see how it can kind of snowball and become more dangerous. And it and it leads to problems with bone health. Mm. Yeah. So basically, like our menstrual function is very, as you can tell, very, very closely linked to energy availability. And energy availability is fundamentally the energy that's left over once the body has taken everything it needs for movement, movement, including training. So when energy availability falls below a certain point, and this will differ from female to female but the the kind of uh, the value that's often quoted in most scientific literature is if it drops below 35 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass then we know that in most women that will stop menstruation from occurring because mm. it's just not enough energy available to allow for that to happen and so 
you know, again, what a lot of people don't realize is that when menstruation stops, then obviously our estrogen levels stop. And estrogen is really, really important in bone health. You know, it's, it's very much has osteogenic properties. So it, it's really important to um, maintain our bone health. It's, it's the same reason why we promote hormone replacement therapy in menopausal women, because they no longer have estrogen. So yeah. again, to support their bone health, we offer them HRT. And so um, often when uh, a female loses their menstrual cycle, their their bone health starts to deteriorate and that puts them at much higher risk of injury and, and bone stress and, and worst case, you know, a stress fracture. So again, that, that makes it difficult. And that's kind of the classic sort of picture of somebody that comes to my clinic is somebody who has had repeated injury and they can't work out why. And then when you piece it all together, it's usually because they've been amenorrheic, which means without a period for maybe 12 months or more. Um, mm. That's been seen as normal because they're, you know, they're an endurance athlete. Um, and actually they've they've kind of got caught up in that cycle of, but when I was that way, I performed at my best. And yeah. so they're kind of trying to kind of get there or stay there or, or even go a little bit lower without really appreciating that the body just can't sustain it at that point and mm-hmm. so there's a lot of education then that's needed to encourage them to change their practices and change their beliefs and change their behaviors so that we can get them back and you know actually get them back stronger and more resilient both physically and mentally so it's it's a very it's a complex picture and yeah. It's not something that's always intentional, like sometimes it's completely unintentional, but those female athletes are much easier to work with because you tell them what to do and they just go ahead and do it and there's no fuss. Whereas when you're working with athletes where there's much more complex, I suppose, psychological um, uh, issues, then then it it takes a bit longer. I um, have experienced amenorrhea on occasion um so going back a few years I was training for an ultramarathon um had lots of stuff going on in our personal life loads of um family things going on and just was super super busy didn't even really pay attention to it and then realized that I hadn't got my period for a couple weeks and then it went on I think then the stress of that made it worse because I was thinking oh my goodness why why haven't I but interestingly it wasn't at all um, I didn't put two and two together at all with, okay, well, this is going to impact me and potentially my my sport and my running. I came at it from, oh my God, am I pregnant? Is there any possible mm. chance? And there wasn't at all, but is there any possible chance I could be pregnant? And it was that was my biggest worry. And I think speaking to some of my um, friend, girlfriends that I went to school with, it's it's similar and it was something we were never, never really told about um, at school, you know, how closely linked your your cycle is um to your hormones and then your hormones to your your bone health and and you know um muscles so I think it's really interesting that you know for for a lot of us um in school it's just not something that's really talked about yet and I and I still don't think it is no it's it is it's an it is an important conversation I think also just to kind of put into context here you know our menstrual cycle is is multifaceted. So when mm. we lose our cycle, it's not always about energy availability. And I think that's really important to highlight as well, because, you know, actually you could lose it because of stress. Like you said, you know, fundamentally, anything that causes stress, so anything that causes um, the nervous system to become stimulated chronically, now that could be the physical stress of training, that could be the physical stress of not eating enough, that could be the physical stress of not recovering sufficiently, but it could also be emotional stress, right? Like yeah. anything that, and it could even be things like not sleeping very well. So actually, if you're a you know, if you're a mum and your child is going through a difficult period of time with sleep, that could affect your menstrual cycle. I think it's really important because I I get really fed up of see this area of of low energy availability and hypothalamic amenorrhea that we're talking about has become quite popular and very, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's talked about a bit more commonly now, especially on, mm. on social media and lots of people are talking about it and their experience, which is, which is not a bad thing. It's, it's, I'm not saying that at all, but I think it's, it's appreciating that it's, it is a clinical condition and it's not as simple as just eating a bit more, yeah. which is what I think a lot of people think it is. It's not, 
there isn't a magic number that you have to eat that suddenly gets your period to come back there's yeah. not necessarily a particular weight that, that your body you know that your that your um cycle will come back at sometimes there is like like in my case I was obviously significantly underweight and then I became a restored weight and and at some point that was the right weight for me to have a cycle right and and sometimes that is the case but but in a lot of the women that come to my clinic who are athletes who are you know whether that's amateur level or, or professional level or elite level they often are a normal weight and they're confused that they're a normal weight and they're not having a period um and 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 again we have to do a bit of a fact-finding mission you know like we 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 have to get a full clinical history we have to look at their blood tests we have to look at their their lifestyles and their lifestyle stresses and their training you know kind of background and there's so much information that's required before we can sort of say well I think in your case it's actually all about this so let's try and do this and see what happens you know like it's it and it's not a simple one size fits all every female I've worked with has has needed a slightly different approach because it is always different there's so much more to it isn't there than just like you say just it's not just calories it's not just well if I eat a bit more then then it will come back and I'll be fine um you know you've got really like I mean similarly to your experiences as a teenager in that in the um doctor's saying you know well you need to eat a bit more and now now you're at the right weight that's it you know we tick the box and you can go Mm. it's it's actually you need to read into a bit more and and really talk about it with that person um so we're near the end now last couple questions what advice would you have given a younger you with regards to your menstrual cycles and sport oh wow um I think I just I just would have been a bit more compassionate and understanding when I got my period you know Mm -hmm. like I think if I'd had a compassionate voice within me if I had to be that spiritual parent to myself at that time I would have kind of said you know what no this is the right time you're exactly the right age and this is what happens and it's normal and you know it's a good sign it's a sign that your body's healthy because as it is it's a barometer of health right it's a good sign that your body's healthy and, you know, yeah, it can be a bit of a pain and, and yes, it can cause pain, but it's a really healthy sign. And, you know, I think I would have sort of, that would have been my little pep talk to myself. And it's pretty much the pep talk I give to my, gave to my daughters. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of sport, interesting one, I suppose, I mean, I, I, I guess I didn't really ever need an excuse um to not do sport I loved sport like I I really was somebody that had no problem going out on a hockey pitch on a Thursday morning in the pissing down rain like I loved it (laughs) um and has my cycle affected my sport no I mean obviously we all have those days like I I'm I'm you know I've been tracking my cycle for, for years now and I'm very aware that definite there are definite points in my cycle where I the perceived exertion feels harder. Um, And I definitely notice things like I sweat a bit more at certain points in my cycle. um, And I definitely notice like changes sometimes to my blood sugars at certain points Mm. in my cycle, but this is all personal to me. And I always say this to women is that, you know, at the moment there isn't any science to absolutely determine that our menstrual cycle affects our performances but that's not to say it doesn't it's a very personal experience and I think the best way to monitor and understand your body better is to monitor it yourself and and to kind of keep a log and so it's not like for me it's not like oh I I kind of use it as an excuse it's just like oh okay yeah that makes sense because I'm you know three days away from my period it makes sense that I'm finding this run a little bit harder um I think for me that it just kind of gives me more understanding of my body and, and respect for it and and why I might need an extra rest day, you know. Yeah. And, and it changes every month because, again, you know, that's the thing is that our menstrual cycle, our hormones, is a, they're affected constantly by our lifestyle. You know, that's yeah. why almost 
no two experiences are the same. You know, some months I sail through it. I wouldn't even know it was coming. And other months I'm like a complete lunatic. And, you know, it's, it's like, oh, my God, what, what's that about? And I, and I guess it's yeah. just additional life stresses and, and maybe training stresses. But, you know, when I did the 250 last year at the end, like last November, I had no idea. Like, obviously, I got, you know, I've got all this knowledge and all this education around Red S. And I'm always, like, encouraging women to think about their their nutrition, particularly when they're doing these big extreme um, challenges. And I was a bit nervous. I was like, what if I get it wrong? Like, I've never done anything like that. So what if I get it wrong? What if my, what if my period gets affected? Yeah. Um, and I think it wasn't that I didn't, like, it, it wasn't like I knew what I needed to eat. But the problem was that the days, you know, you're out running for six, seven hours a day, and then you'd come home, we'd come back to camp and you're exhausted and you kind of ate and then you went to bed. <laughs> so there just wasn't a lot of time to fuel as much as I needed. And I, I guess that did, you know, as much as I did my best, I was a bit like, oh, okay, I wonder what effect this will have. But yeah, yeah what happened was I can, I saw, because I was tracking, is that my I ovulated actually four days late oh, because... Right way the way the uh the, the challenge had had start you know it kind of would have been around the time I would have ovulated but also didn't during that time but actually mm. I think it was like four or five days late and actually that meant my cycle was just a couple of days late as well so yeah. it, I, but I was really proud of myself that I'd able I was I felt quite um yeah I felt really proud that I was like yeah I had a period you know, I something <laughs> yeah. really hard. And and to be fair, like since I've had my girls, I have been I've not lost my period ever again. So yeah, you know, I you know, I, I like I know how to I know that I can, but that was quite a novel experience in terms of running. So I had I didn't know what was gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um so finally, uh the WISE, W-I-S-E, in this podcast title, stands for Women in Sport Empowered. Would you say that empowering others, whether that's through your professional work or your personal life um, and your story, is that, would you say that empowering others is one of your kind of purposes in life and sharing your knowledge to help others? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I I definitely feel women women need to champion women and I'm mm. I'm all about that and you know I know that my closest female friends always feel that about me you know like there's no competition you know we might all be runners we might all be authors or, or whatever but there's no competition it's like mm. I love that they're doing well I and I want to empower them to believe in themselves and I think when it comes to my work yeah a lot of the work because I I do work predominantly in the in the in the female athlete I guess. Yeah, I want women to be educated because we know that if we look after our bodies, if we understand our bodies, then we're more likely to respect them and treat them better and get the results we're looking for. And I think that was something that was fundamentally missing from my childhood. Um and it's something I've you know, I've tried to install in in my children. Um mm. but also it is something, it is definitely my my message, you know, is that respect your body because it's it works so much better for you. And I yeah. and I talk about that not just physically, but mentally as well. People don't realize that, you know, if you're underfueling, if you're under-eating, if you're under-resting, then your body can't function properly. Like your nervous system is switched on, which means that actually you're much more biased towards negative thinking and mm low mood and intrusive thoughts which affects how we live day to day so actually you know looking after that body and understanding how it works and what it needs and totally totally nurturing it I mean it's really important to me now having been through my story I never ever want to treat my body badly again ever Mm. Um, and I, I hope that I inspire that in others I'm sure you do um you've definitely empowered me I think in both aspects I think you know you've had such big things thrown at you in your life both both professionally and personally and then to be 
um, you know, doing so well, so highly regarded professionally, and then to be doing so well in your running as well. I think it's just so admirable to have come through all of that. Um, I think you've definitely empowered many women. So um, I think that's a nice place to finish. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about Rini on her website, reenimcgregor.com, or via her Instagram at r underscore mcgregor. You can also buy any of her fantastic books, including the latest More Fuel You from any good bookshops. Um, I've got More Fuel You. I haven't read all of that yet, but Training Food was one I picked up a few years ago, and I recommend it to so many people. It's such a fantastic book if you're um, you know, just an amateur athlete like me or even a professional, you know, there's so much fantastic information in there. So I really, really um, go and have a look. Uh, I will put links to everything in the show notes, including some links to organisations um, who can help if anyone listening thinks they might be suffering with an eating disorder. Um, all that's left for me to say is thank you so much for talking with me, Rini. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wise Women in Sport podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us or leave a review and make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcast so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. And see you next week.